they are closing the ship on an attack vector, failing to heed any of our warnings. I said, I reckon they've got about 30 seconds before I give you the order to open fire. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battles. The story of transformation is powerful. David McCourt is a former captain of the Royal Australian Navy. We spoke about his seafaring career, including highlights from the Cold War, East Timor, and deployments to the Middle East during the War on Terror and the Second Iraq War. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with David McCourt. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Alex. So David, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Ararat in Western Victoria. My dad was a teacher at a small country school nearby, so I spent my very early years living in the school residence. And then just before I started primary school, we moved into western suburbs of Melbourne. So I spent a lot of my school years in and around Footscray and those kind of places in um, western Melbourne. I always enjoyed our holidays going back to the western district, and we spent a lot of our school holidays on a friend's farm. And I think that influenced me significantly in what I wanted to do later in life. Like everybody of that era, we spent most of our lives outdoors when we weren't, uh, weren't doing homework. Uh, with my friends, we would uh, go off on our bikes and go exploring or get into trouble. We used to go and hang around at an old abandoned quarry and create havoc down there and just tour the area on our bikes. And so I think I was outdoors most of the time. I was in the scouts as well for a while. I like bushwalking. I like being in the bush. I like being outdoors. And when you were growing up, did you have anyone ahead of you in the family who had served in the military or any kind of history there? Not in my immediate family. My great uncle on my grandma's side, uh, so on my mother's side, had been killed in the First World War. And his name was David as well. And in fact, I was told that I was named after him. So I guess that was always in the back of my mind that we had this kind of military history. But during the Second World War, my dad brought up in Northern Ireland was a a fitter and turner, and he worked in uh, in an aircraft factory making Sterling bombers. So he wasn't able to join the uh, the military as he'd wanted. In fact, he had told me that he tried to join the Navy on a number of occasions, and his best friend was a stoker in the uh, Ark Royal and was sunk, uh, you know, when that ship was sunk and he drowned. So I guess those stories played in the back of my mind, but not so consciously, really. I'm just curious then what initially caught your interest about the military because you joined the Navy at 17. Where did you first start to gravitate towards that military path? I guess like a lot of kids in that era, we were all a bit fascinated by the Second World War because it wasn't really that, you know, that was something that our parents had been involved in. And so it was reasonably fresh in our kind of family consciousness, I guess. And like a lot of kids in that era, there were shows on, you know, what shows on television that, that were set in the Second World War, World War II movies. And we used to play, you know, when we were kids, play those kind of games. I had an interest in joining the army for a long time and I had thought at one stage that I would go to Duntroon and join as an army officer but around the time I was thinking seriously about that there was a series of um, scandals surrounding Duntroon and the bastardisation that 
went on there and that kind of cooled my ardour a little bit for going, for going to Duntroon. So for a period of time, I wasn't that interested in the military. And then just when I was thinking about what I would do post high school, I was looking at becoming a teacher like my parents and I went and had a day of experience in a classroom and it just didn't do anything for me at all. And then I saw an ad on the television for, a, you know, it was a Navy ad. It was pretty dynamic with destroyers carving up the ocean and ships under, under wheel and a really good tune. And I thought, oh, that, that looks a bit all right. So I went into the recruiting centre in, in Melbourne and went up to the desk and there was the chief petty officer behind the desk and I had a chat with him and said I was interested in joining the Navy. And he, he asked me what I wanted to do. Did I want to be a chief or an Indian? And I, I said, well, I didn't realise there, there was a choice. I thought you just joined the Navy. Anyway, he gave me a pamphlet and um, a bit of advice and sent me on my way. So I went home and I read the book and had a chat with my dad and, uh, and then I put my application in basically to join the Navy as a as a seaman officer, as it was called in those days. And uh, my dad was keen to support me and he signed the approval papers that, because I was underage. I was only 17 at the time. So my dad signed as, as the, you know, the parent and that caused a bit of a rift because mum wasn't keen at all. In fact, she was dead against it. But dad could see that it was something I was really interested in. So he, he signed the papers and uh, a couple of months later, I joined the Navy down at HMA Service. Well, that's interesting that, yes, you veered off the path of the army for those uh, scandal reasons, because it did sound like you would quite gravitate towards even an infantry lifestyle with all your bushwalking interests and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, Alex. And it, and it was actually the infantry that I had always been interested in. And I had done you know, at school projects on, on Tobruk and, uh, you know, battles in the Western Front, you know, the, you know, the, the light horse at Beersheba in the First World War, the Western Front. I mean, I, I was quite interested in that. And had I joined the army, I certainly would have been drawn to the infantry. There's no doubt about that. Tell me about your training days. Oh, they were excellent. I joined the Navy as a very naive 17-year-old and I joined it under a scheme called the Supplementary List Scheme, which no longer really exists. It was the scheme whereby the Navy could get people in uh, and train them up pretty quickly and get them to sea. The objective was to get us to sea within six months to start our training crews, as opposed to going to the Naval College where that might take several years. And so to some degree, the proper officers regarded us as, uh, as second 11, uh, which we found a bit entertaining, but um, it was just a little bit of you know intra-service rivalry, which was really mostly just good fun. As a 17-year-old, it was great for me to join the Navy in that scheme because I joined with a lot of adults. There were people ranging from my age, and I, was, I think I was the second or third youngest, right through to people of 26 years old. And so to start my training in a group that included you know, quite mature people with life experience was really good for my um, maturing, because I certainly wasn't very mature when I joined, but having those guys to um, you know, provide a bit of, I guess, guidance and mentorship was really handy. And, and they became, we all became really good friends too. Most of our instruction was done by chief petty officers. All of them were Vietnam veterans. And so they, uh, they were salty old sea dogs and uh, of, of a type that you probably don't find in the Navy anymore, but they were real characters. They all had, you know, outrageous nicknames and they, they told us some pretty outrageous stories. So, they, so our education really started with those guys about the reality of the real Navy as opposed to the Navy that you, you read in the textbooks. Interestingly, they were all gunnery branch sailors and they had all been on the gun line in Vietnam and so they'd, they'd been delivering fire ashore and they'd been some of them received fire back from North Vietnamese artillery batteries so they were you know they were hoary old chiefs who they weren't really old actually we thought they were but on reflection they're probably only in their 30s <laughs> When you're 17, that's old, yeah. Yeah, indeed it is. That's right. And your training also included some time on submarines over in the UK and you were awarded dolphins. Yeah, that was later on. So I, I started out, as I said, as a seaman officer, but 
having joined the Navy, I thought that I would like to be a submariner. And so having done, you know, some professional training at sea on frigates and destroyers, I volunteered for submarine service and then was accepted and went off to the UK for a three-month uh, submarine officer training course at, uh, at Portsmouth. Once I got my dolphins, I was posted to a, a different submarine and the regime there was quite different. The whole culture of that submarine was different to the one from which I'd come and uh, I didn't actually enjoy that quite as much. I found, actually found it quite difficult to break into that crew, a newcomer and a, a relative outsider. And I was probably there for about a year. But towards the end of my time, uh, and I wasn't enjoying submarine service by that stage particularly, I also got quite ill. As a consequence of my illness, I was made medically unfit for submarines, permanently medically unfit. So I went back to general service, which uh, went back to the surface fleet. Very kind old uh, submarine commander organised me a posting to a ship that was going on deployment to the Indian Ocean for six months. And, uh, and away I sailed. I got my bridge watchkeeping certificate while I was on that deployment. And uh, that deployment was a, a classic Cold War deployment where we were, we were part of a um, US carrier, United States of Navy carrier battle group. We were chasing submarines, you know, Russian submarines around the Indian Ocean and having encounters with, with Russian aircraft and naval ships almost daily. And so it was, uh, it was a full-on you know, operation, really, it's, it, within the limitations of the Cold War, but great experience for a young officer getting his bridge watch-keeping ticket. So when I came back uh, from that deployment with my qualification, I was, I was in a much better place and I was really quite keen then to remain in the Navy and, uh, and keep on going in the career. Let's talk more on what that is like operating in that Cold War environment. For me, as a young bridge watchkeeper, it wasn't particularly tense. I think with the benefit of hindsight, having later on done time as a PWA, you know, qualifying as a warfare officer, I suspect the operations room, it was very tense in there. But for us on the bridge, it was really exciting because uh, here we were sailing along at, uh, because in the Indian Ocean, uh, northwest Indian Ocean, sometimes there's zero wind. And when we were working with the carriers, they'd, they'd have to uh, go 35 knots to uh, get enough wind over the deck to launch their aircraft. And so we would be in a station such as Rescue Destroyer right behind the carrier, going along with four boilers engaged, absolutely top speed. The ship would be shaking like nobody's business. And we had to stay, you know, in close proximity stationed uh, off the carrier. And uh, they were, they, we'd see them uh, launching literally dozens of aircraft. Uh, if there was any chance of a, uh, a Russian aircraft coming anywhere near us, the carrier would launch aircraft to fend them off. We would see Russian aircraft daily. We would see Russian ships routinely. And uh, when we did see them, it was a matter of um, often playing the, you know, rule the road game, which is where you try to make, uh, by utilising the prevention of collisions at sea kind of um, rules, you would try to make the other party turn away by uh, positioning yourself such that they had to give way to you. And so there was a bit of that gamesmanship going on as well. I also did some time in, um, in HMAS Parramatta. That was when I did a deployment to China. And that was interesting too, because we went to China. I think we were probably the second Australian ship to go to the People's Republic of China. It was still a very closed kind of country. And the port we went to was Shanghai. And uh, that was nothing like the Shanghai of today. It was a closed city. There were only a couple of places we were allowed to go, literally the Friendship Hotel and the Friendship Supermarket, if you like, or department store. And that was it. And the rest of our time was spent attending cultural events like uh, concerts and, you know, touring tractor factories and all those kind of things. So um, it was an interesting expose to life in the People's Republic of China. I mean, we were followed everywhere, always under scrutiny. So that was, that was quite something to experience as well. Some very friendly shore leave, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> not, so, not so much. Your career includes a range of warfare and operations postings on a variety of ships, and you do get to have some shore-based postings eventually. By the 1990s, you're a lieutenant commander. 
in April 1995, you take command of HMAS Geraldton. First seagoing command, that's correct. It's funny because I had, I had to join the ship in Dampier Port for a handover with the CO sailing back to HMAS Stirling. And uh, I was picked up at the airport by the, the coxswain and we had a chat on the way back to the patrol boat and he was very happy to tell me all the innermost secrets and, you know, of, of the operation of a patrol boat and the personalities and, and so on and so forth, certainly from his perspective anyway. So I joined the boat with a little bit of intel, I guess, on how it was running. And then I sailed down to, well, I think it was a couple of nights from Dampier back down to HMO Stirling. So I got the opportunity to observe the operation of the boat and then probably a day after we joined, we arrived back in Stirling, I then took command. So I felt that I had a quite a good insight into the patrol boat. I felt that I could see the, um, you know, the positives and the negatives about, of it and of the crew. And, uh, and I felt that I needed to do something reasonably drastically different to build a sense of camaraderie and a sense of uh, being a ship's company in that patrol boat. The morale was not so good and there certainly was not a good sense of camaraderie and I felt that I had to do something quite positive to have an influence and to, to try and build that up for the course of my command. And what were some of the strategies you implemented? I had always thought that sport was a good way to build teamwork. When I took over the boat, we were actually alongside in Stirling and we were alongside for a couple of weeks. I told the ship's company that leave would expire the next working day at the gym, the HMO Stirling gym. I had served with one of the petty officer physical training instructors who worked at the gym in a previous ship and I got on very well with him. So I'd actually spoken with him about developing a training program for the ship's company. So we started out just with PT, just doing, you know, fitness type activities. And we did that for a couple of days. And I got, must say, I got some funny looks from the crew when we were doing, when we were doing the PT, being yelled at by PDIs and doing, you know, burpees and chin-ups and the like. And then by the third day, we started playing some sport against one another, making teams, scratch teams for volleyball or deck hockey or things like that. And after we'd probably done a week of that, a couple of the troops said to me, well, when are we going to start playing sport against some of the other teams in the area? At that point, I thought, well, okay, it's starting to come together. We challenged the uh, other patrol boats, other departments at Stirling. And at that point, I started to see that they were getting a sense of competitiveness and also a sense of teamwork and pride in, in who we were and simple things like we didn't have uh, the ship didn't have any of its own identifying uh, sporting strips you know no no jumpers t-shirts whatever so we ordered those and uh, and I was quite surprised pleasantly when they arrived troops just couldn't wait to open the packets out and have a look at them and start trying on these strips and so on and so using sport as I guess the initial vehicle, we started to build that sense of, of camaraderie and teamwork. And then when we went on patrol, we played sport in every port that we went to. We went to a minor war vessel concentration period where all the patrol boats basically worked together from Cairns, Darwin and Western Australia. And we won the sports trophy at the carnival. That was fantastic for the troops. That was a real, you know, that was just fantastic for that to occur. And they were so, so pleased that happened. And then later on, when the exercise had finished, we actually won the trophy for the best patrol boat um, in that concentration period. That was phenomenal because we actually hadn't even fully worked up at that stage. So we, we were actually, from the perspective of operationally ready, weren't, but we won that trophy. Let's jump ahead to 1998 when you are the Joint Operations Officer at Headquarters North Command in Darwin. So you're involved in military operations and disaster relief in the North in regards to Border protection. 
At that time, HQ Norcom had an area of operations that went from Townsville in the east, 200 miles out to sea, which to the extent of the uh, exclusive economic zone, and then all the way around in an arc right around to Learmonth in Western Australia, perhaps a little bit south of Learmonth. And so about 1% of the Earth's surface, and then large swathes of the land mass as well in you know, northern Queensland, northern territory, and northwest Western Australia. And that was all part of our area of operations. And so what we initially ran up there was a surveillance operation. So we just coordinated this massive surveillance program that also included anti-illegal fishing operations, counter-narcotics from time to time, what were in those days called uh, illegal entry, or suspected illegal entry vessels, so uh, illegal immigrants uh, or whatever they're called this week. And so there were those counter-incursion type operations that we ran all the time. And interestingly enough, that was before it all became you know, a bit politically sensitive. So we just cracked on and did that with very little political oversight or, or interest. The ships that did the boarding operations and interception operations routinely were, uh, were arresting, apprehending illegal fishing boats from various nations. And we were routinely bringing in suspected illegal entry vessels full of what were then called illegal immigrants from you know, the Middle East and other countries, China and so on. Yeah. So those operations just continued as normal. And overlaid on top of that, we had a responsibility for disaster relief in the north. Uh, for coordinating that, we had a bunch of um, standing plans to respond to things like cyclones and so on. And so in my time up there, we probably enacted our cyclone response half a dozen times, if not more. Probably the most serious of those was Tropical Cyclone Vance, which came ashore around Onslow in Western Australia and did a heap of damage over there. And that was probably our largest emergency response to try and restore those towns, uh, Onslow, um, Exmouth. There was a, a zebra stripe mollusk infestation. And apparently this is a really virulent pest. If that had gotten into other waterways, it would have caused a heap of ecological damage. Fortunately, it only got into Cullen Bay and that's a closed marina. So we're able to we were asked to help out with that. And so we were able to quarantine the marina and basically eradicate that pest by, you know, using Navy assets and working with um, Australian Quarantine Service uh, to stop that. That's quite interesting to reflect on dealing with illegal entry vessels because, as you say, the language around it today is incredibly politically charged. You're doing this in a time before the Tampa affair. Um, this is before 2001, so it's going to be far more just routine. Well, there were still occasions when there was a degree of not politics in the sense of politicians at the government level involved, but certainly there were times when I, when I did butt heads with other government agencies. I learned some interesting things about ethics and integrity during that time I recall an incident where a suspected illegal entry vessel that was in really shoddy condition, it was starting to sink, it was drifting aimlessly off the coast, hadn't entered our immigration zone, no crime had been committed, but the expectation was that it might. Uh, I spoke with the patrol boat CEO at the time and he said he was concerned that the boat was unseaworthy and that it was in imminent danger of sinking. So I rang up what was then uh, Department of Immigration, Multicultural Affairs, unauthorised arrivals officer that I dealt with and I said, look, this boat's it's probably going to sink. We've got a responsibility under Safety of Life at Sea to rescue those people and so that's my intention. And, oh, my Lord, it was like there was a, a shouting match. I was being shouted at down the phone saying, you can't do that, you know, then we'll have to look after those people, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, of course we'll have to look after them. That's what we do. <laughs> we're mariners. We're mariners first. If you see another ship in distress, the first thing you do is save them. 
you don't worry about anything else. You lived by an older, more grounded sailor's code than some modern policy devised in Canberra. Absolutely right. And I, uh, absolutely right. And the patrol boat CEO and I had spoken about this and we were absolutely of one accord that the right thing to do was to rescue these people before it got too late, before darkness fell, before it would become more complicated. Uh, Really, I was just telling this person out of politeness, really. After it became clear to me that uh, it was going to become an issue, I went and spoke with uh, my boss, who was uh, the commander in Norcom, who was a Commodore, a Navy Commodore, and I just said, this is what I intend to do. And he said, absolutely right, Dave, off you go. He, being a mariner as well, understood perfectly that we have this kind of code of the sea that has been around for centuries and that we would not leave people in peril. I gave the instructions to that patrol boat CO to crack on and rescue those people. They rescued them as predicted. The boat sank and we brought those people into into Broome safely without loss of life and without injury and copped a heap of abuse from the Department of Immigration. But you know what? We felt that we'd done the right thing. So we were pretty comfortable with that. And it's also in your role at Headquarters North Command, David, that you first become involved in East Timor in regards to Interfet. When General Cosgrove went into um, East Timor, my headquarters was allocated duties as headquarters rear. So basically we became the forward mounting base for anything going into East Timor. And that was a really interesting time. I, I think Darwin became almost a garrison town overnight, probably unprecedented since World War II. And if you weren't in Darwin, you just couldn't imagine what it was like. But there were just military stuff going on everywhere. Every piece of spare ground was being used for some kind of military purpose. The team that I had, we kind of restructured ourselves internally within the headquarters. And some members of my team were part of the force preparation. We had a force preparation responsibility. So we worked with all the international groups coming into Darwin to prepare them properly for when they actually then went over into East Timor. Detachments or contingents, I should say, from places like uh, Kenya, South Korea. We were operating with ships from you know, Singapore Navy, Italian Navy, French Navy, German Navy. There were South Africans flying in and out. There were um, German Hercules. I mean, it was just such a multinational affair. It was quite something to be involved in that. In that first week or so, those of us in the headquarters who had key roles were probably there, you know, 20 hours a day. And although we were really tired, it was, you know, a really interesting and intense period of time and doing something that was actually actually real. And from the perspective of the Australian, you know, the whole of Australia's military effort, that's probably the first time we've done something that big since, I'd say, since the Vietnam War. But then you get to have a much more up-close and personal experience in 2000 when you're posted there as a UN military observer. I knew an Australian Navy guy who was a military observer in East Timor, and he was a Navy clearance diver. Up until that time, it was only Navy clearance divers who were of the Navy cadre, you know, I guess from the Navy officer cadre, were able to be military observers because they were perceived to have some kind of land-based military skill set. But having been in that Joint Force headquarters and when I saw the, the signal come out asking for volunteers, I went and spoke with my boss who was a, a colonel. He'd been a CO of 3RAR and he was ex-SAS and he was a really good guy. And I, I actually asked his advice. I said, I'm really interested in this job. Do you think I could do it? And he said, absolutely. He said, the only thing you're probably missing is a little bit of infantry minor tactics awareness. And he said, and I can organise for someone to teach you about that. And so on his recommendation, I volunteered. And in the meantime, he organised for a, an army captain to come down from um, Robertson Barracks. He was an infantry captain and teach me about infantry minor tactics, which were pretty straightforward, really. And so I went off and did the course at Robertson Barracks with a bunch of army people and subsequently was cleared to deploy, which is part of the outcome of the course is uh, an army psychologist says whether you're suitable for deployment or not. And uh, apparently I was mad enough 
to be considered suitable. And then I was posted and uh, ultimately headed over to East Timor for a six-month deployment. Because you're a sector commander for a few districts and things aren't settled at this time. There's still militia that needs to be removed and it's a period of complicated transition. Yeah, well, it certainly was. I was told that I was going to be a deputy sector commander initially. Once I kind of had my feet under the desk, then I would take on the sector commander's role. So when I first arrived in a little kind of regional town called Inaro, which was quite inland and in the mountainous area, I was a deputy commander, but the commander himself was at another place called Same, which was probably a couple of hours drive away. He was Uruguayan, Uruguayan Army, and uh, he was quite bemused to have an Australian Navy commander as his deputy. But anyway, we got on quite well and it didn't take very long, I guess maybe a couple of weeks before I took over as the sector commander. I was the only Australian military person in the sector at all. It was the Portuguese sector, sector South Central. Very early in the piece, started to pick up some intelligence. A militia group was infiltrating back into our area. And this militia group, was the local one was called the Mahidi, and they had been particularly nasty. Uh, there were a lot of massacres in our district previously, and uh, every time we went out on patrol to a new area, we would find out more stories about massacres that had occurred in that period of transition from when the Indonesians left to when the area was um, basically taken over by the Interfet forces. And there, was a, there were a lot of massacres in that region. So we heard about the Mahidi uh, infiltrating back into our area. Now, Portuguese response was to send heavily armed convoys to various townships and villages trying to get intelligence on the whereabouts of these militia. But the fact of the matter was that being former colonial masters, the locals were not particularly, you know, they just weren't receptive to them. And they certainly weren't receptive to seeing uh, trucks full of heavily armed soldiers, which basically reminded them when the Indonesians had the place. Our approach, on the other hand, was for me, one other military observer and our interpreter to basically either walk into a village or drive in in our vehicle. And we were unarmed as well. And we would normally meet with the village chief and the, and the local, I can't think of the, the title now, but basically the local padre. We would normally have a coffee with them, some stale biscuits from Indonesia and have a chat. We'd ask them about the, you know, the health of people in the village. And if we could, we'd organise for a medical team to go and visit the village, that kind of thing. Really hearts and minds kind of stuff. And often... Just as we were leaving, they would tell us something that was of intelligence interest. would normally be right as we were about to leave. It would be almost the last thing. And we'd, we'd have asked a few preparatory questions along the way about, oh, have you seen you know, anybody strange in the area? Have you seen anybody passing through with weapons, blah, blah, blah? Those kind of you know, questions, but almost in an offhand way, not in an interrogatory way. And inevitably, as we were about to leave, they might pull us aside and say, oh, look, you know, we did see this thing. We did see these people walk through the village last night or whatever. And... Just through that kind of softly, softly approach, we started to build up a really good picture of where the militia were operating, what their operational routines were, where they were patrolling at night, where they were setting up their observation posts and that kind of thing. And ultimately, through our reports back to our headquarters, Portuguese realised that we were actually onto something and we were providing more intel than they could gather. And so they dispatched a special civilian community relations team to our sector and there was one young lieutenant who was in command of that and he ultimately would come on patrol with us just the four of us they were able to garner the same kind of information we were and we built up a really good picture of where the militia were actually located and the um, the portuguese built a plan around that they ultimately brought in uh, their forces and basically swept through the forest where we'd identified these militia as operating pushed them through that forest out of that forest and 
and over the board, you know, into the adjoining sector, which was Sector West, and that sector actually was run by the Kiwis at the time, and ran them. The militia basically ran through a blocking position that had been set up by the Kiwis, and they were all they were all captured or killed basically. And that was the end of the militia incursion in our sector. It never happened again, and that probably took about a month, maybe more, to actually get from start to finish. Once that the militia had been moved on, things settled down a lot. And we were able to basically have a have a hand in things like um, aid to the police by identifying where massacres had occurred and then facilitating investigations in those areas and basically started to work towards transition to the full democracy. So we were able to help the international observer community set up for their first election and start to get the census going and all that kind of thing. An interesting time, something different for you being firmly land-based and also a very effective result at the end of it. It was, and uh, overlaid on that was the fact that I'd uh, ruptured one of my discs just before I left. Been very reluctant to tell anybody about that for fear that I wouldn't deploy. I was surreptitiously seeing a, uh, a physiotherapist and a chiropractor before I went, not through the military, and uh, and then spent the rest of my six months crunching anti-inflammatories and painkillers. But um, I wasn't going to miss out on that opportunity, not for a, a slip disc or a crushed disc, but it made it challenging sometimes bouncing along the worst roads in the world. But it was great. It was a great experience. Well, shortly after you returned from Timor in 2001, you take command of the amphibious landing ship HMAS Canimbla, which is deployed to the Middle East right after 9-11. I was actually posted to Canimbla before I went to East Timor. After I came back from East Timor, my family and I moved to Canberra and I um, started doing the command course. The Chief of the Navy at the time had announced a whole bunch of kind of morale-boosting measures, one of which was a, an operation called Boomerang, which was going to be a fleet-sized deployment around the world. And one of the ships that was going on Operation Boomerang was Canimbla. It was me in command, and we were going to do some really exciting and interesting stuff, like we were going to do a deployment to South Africa. We were going to come up uh, west coast of Africa and go uh, into the Mediterranean. We were going to do some amphibious exercises with the French Navy. We were going to go to the UK, go up into Europe exciting once in a lifetime kind of deployment and uh, i remember when i woke up on the morning of 9-11 my alarm went off and woke up my wife and i we always had it tuned to the news so we'd, we'd lie in bed listen to the news and then get moving for the day and of course when we heard the news about 9-11 i said to my wife well that's the end of operation boomerang we won't be doing that i don't know what we will be doing but we won't be doing that and sure enough that was absolutely the case at fleet headquarters was part of the course was there and I was called out of the room by the fleet commander's secretary, the admiral's secretary, and I said, oh, I'm just doing this, you know, can we just wait till the lesson's finished? And he said, no, fleet commander wants to see you right now. And I thought, what have I done? Have I done something wrong? Am I, <laughs> <laughs> am I in trouble? You don't normally get dragged out of it like that. I was racking my brain to think, what have I done wrong? Is something from my dark distant past coming to bite me? I don't know. <laughs> You know, and so with a bit of trepidation, I kind of w went up to the fleet commander's office and uh, and then I was basically directed by the flag lieutenant to go in. And I walked in the fleet commander's office and he was sitting, you know, behind his desk. The chief of Navy was sitting on the couch. And then the chief, the fleet commander came around and he sat on one of the armchairs and he invited me to sit on the couch next to the chief of Navy. And I thought, oh, this has got to be really serious. The fleet commander at that stage was Admiral Smith and he'd been my boss at Norcom. So he said, right, Dave, I've called you out of class because uh, I wanted to let you know that we're going to post you to Canimbla early. I said, oh, okay. He said, uh, you'll finish the navigation component and then you'll join Canimbla in October in Western Australia and take it to the Gulf. I said, okay, righto. And then the Chief of Navy took over the commentary at that point and 
gave me a little bit of the background on what the expectations were. And, and basically he said, we're going to the golf. We're not sure what you're going to be doing, but it, it'll all become clear in time. He said, what we want you to do is, uh, is get that ship ready to go to war. And, uh, and that's why we're pulling off course early to get that happening. And the one key piece of information he said to me was this, up until now, all your training around naval warfare, rules of engagement, all those kind of things has been that we would only ever respond to an aggressive act. In other words, and this is certainly borne out by all the training I ever did and exercise at sea, we would only ever respond after someone had attacked us, after we had taken the first hit. And he said to me, those days are gone. He said, you will not take the first hit. Whatever you need to do, do it to make sure that we do not take the first hit in this scenario, you know, going forward. Strike first. Indeed, indeed. I thought about it for a while and, uh, and then I asked him a few questions around it and we discussed what it actually might mean in practical terms. And I just said, okay, so in this scenario, yep, in this scenario, yep, just wanted to make, just wanted to make absolutely crystal clear in my own mind that I knew what I was being told. And then having satisfied that and the fleet commander gave me a, a few words of wisdom, uh, having, you know, because I knew him and I'd worked very closely with him. The uh, Chief of Navy re reiterated that don't take the first hit and I kind of said tongue-in-cheek, so um, will I get that in writing? <laughs> and he just laughed and said, don't be so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be hung out to dry in that scenario? Absolutely. That was kind of prescient, I guess, um, advice that I was given because later on I, I absolutely had to, um, I had to practice that, I guess, if you like that theory. I joined Kanimbla, uh, the previous CEO, left, and I took over command, and so he left in the morning, gave his farewell speech. I carried on the trips for lunch and then remustered the ship's company after lunch and basically introduced myself and, and basically gave them a, an introduction into what we'd be doing and what we could expect as far as our deployment and so on. And I was pretty, I had to say, I was pretty blunt about it. I told them about where we were going. I told them about what our missions might be. I was very frank about the threat. And I told them about, you know, things that had gone on with um, USS Cole being attacked by a suicide ship alongside in, uh, in I think it was in Yemen, USS Princeton hitting, hitting mines. I, I was really quite blunt about the threats that we faced just to focus their attention on the fact that, you know, we're about to do this high-intensity workup to prepare ourselves to go to a war zone, and it's actually fair income that we had to actually be real about it. Once we got stuck into that training, the ship's company responded really, really well and, and they were fantastic. Well, they'd woken up on the morning of September 11 and seen the same imagery you had. So I'm sure what you were saying clicked immediately with probably what they were suspecting was going to be the case in their minds. So You're right. And I've talked to some, I mean, I've still maintained contact with many of those ship's company and we still have our annual reunions and the like. And it was only a couple of years ago, two years ago, that the chief boatswain's mate said to me, um, he said, I'll never forget when you told us that we were not to take the first hit. He said that instruction stuck in his, you know, in his mind as it did in mine because it was such a change. And, of course, I just told the ship's company exactly the same thing. And um, they took a lot of pride in getting to that level of um, operational competence. Well, let's jump ahead to when you actually hit the Gulf. I'm interested, firstly, in the big picture of what the atmosphere is like on the ship, whether there's tension, excitement, or an interesting combination of the two coexisting, and then how that gels with some of those stories when you are actually having to take action and ensure you don't take the first hit. As you know, we went to the Gulf twice. And so in 2001, we went to the Gulf to enforce sanctions against Iraq as part of the, the war on terror, if you like. 
we arrived in the Middle East and we did our transit through the Straits of Hormuz. And that was a real, I guess, wake up call because we went to action stations for real, you know, and that was the first time we'd gone to action stations that wasn't in an exercise. And that focused the attention of a lot of people. Straits of Hormuz, most dangerous waterway in the world, allegedly, you're in the missile engagement envelope of multiple missiles. You know, we were challenged by the Iranians, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a real focusing activity. And then we went into Bahrain. We birthed at the American uh, Naval Facility in Bahrain and started doing a whole bunch of briefings. And our boarding parties started doing training in anticipation of some kind of boarding role that we would do in the Northern Arabian Gulf. Now, the Australian ships that had been in the Gulf previously were, were doing boardings in support of the United Nations sanctions and had established a bit of a, a name for themselves in doing so. And, and our expectation was that we would do that too. But there'd been a lot of uncertainty on our way to the Gulf about what our role would actually be. And the commander of the task group was an Australian captain by the name of Alan Dutois. He was lobbying, I guess, for us to have a role that was operational and that was forward. The chief of the Defence Force at the time was Australian Admiral Barry. And in his mind, all we would do would be a, an ocean-going truck. So his view was that we would just take stuff around from one place to another. And I believe that he didn't actually fully appreciate the capabilities that, that ship had. Yes, we had a lot of space to carry cargo, but we could land three helicopters on simultaneously. We, could, we had a command and control facility there that was, that was experimental, but second to none, it was in the fleet. It was you know, terrific. So we could be a command ship, we could be a helicopter operations ship, we could be running boarding operations, we could be carrying stuff, we could do all these things simultaneously. But the CDF of the day just had this kind of narrow view that we would be a truck. And so it took a lot of lobbying by people like Captain Dutrois and fleet staff and indeed staff in theatre to get our role changed from transport to you know, a more operationally focused role. And in the end, it was agreed that we would have this operational role. Fortunately, that occurred by the time we had arrived you know, up at the Northern Arabian Gulf, having undertaken all this boarding training, which, which we did on spec, really. We did it because we were there and we could in the hope that we would have that role, but we didn't have that role specified at the time. Anyway, by the time we got up to the Northern Arabian Gulf, we had that role and, and that was great. And once we got up there, the Americans, having seen our ship, having realised its capabilities, started to engage with us to do more and more. We were running boarding operations with our own boarding party. But also during that time, we embarked uh, a SEAL team, a US Navy SEAL team with their large ribs. And we were able to insert them covertly right up into the mouth of the Qua Abdullah River, Qua Abdullah Waterway, I should say, at night without being detected and use that capability to intercept the, you know, the illegal oil shipments coming out of Iraq. And indeed, we did the same thing with our own boarding parties and were very successful at that. And at the same time, we had a brief period of time where the US Navy commander for that area was embarked in Canimbla and came to understand what a great capability it was uh, as a command and control platform. And actually, uh, that knowledge that he gained and the experience that we gained and the reputation that we gained in that first deployment in 2001-2002 had a large bearing on what we subsequently did when we went back in 2003. We've interviewed a couple of officers who served under you previously on this podcast, uh, Sarah Turner and Michael Wright, and they shared stories with us times where some fast attack patrol boats were speeding towards Canimbla, but thankfully turned away before action was needed to be taken. Were there many of those kind of encounters? I wouldn't say it happened every week, but it happened routinely enough that it was routine, sort of. Interestingly, we had very little interaction 
with the Iraqi armed forces at the time. I think they appreciated that the coalition forces in the, uh, in the North Arabian Gulf were such that they would have been overwhelmed. So they never bothered us at all. But the Iranians, on the other hand, because we were operating in disputed territorial waters, so the Iranian, what they, what they called Iranian claimed territorial seas, but which weren't recognised internationally. So there were chunks of water where we operated that the Iranians felt were theirs, but which weren't recognised internationally. So that was a cause of quite a bit of tension. And so routinely when we operated in those waters, we would receive threatening radio calls from the Iranians. They'd sometimes send out patrol boats to kind of uh, come towards us on the attack profile to test our resolve. So that was not unusual. There was one occurrence uh, one night when the, uh, the army landing craft that we had embarked in, we disembarked them and we were using them for uh, a bunch of missions in the area. And they were anchored up one night, not too far, like well, not too far from Q80 territorial waters. They had a bunch of clearance divers on board because they'd just done a particular task. Uh, Navy clearance divers, our ones, and they called me up early evening, perhaps certainly well dark, and reported that they were being approached by what they felt was a Navy vessel, but that was completely darkened. And so they felt that the approach was they were intimidated by the approach, being the small, lightly armed landing craft. I instructed the sergeant in command of that planning craft to work his way through the graduated responses that we had for that kind of scenario. So things like your escalatory verbal warnings, and then we also had escalatory physical actions as well. He escalated the verbal warnings. So we got to the point where it started firing flares. That's one of the physical measures that you can take, fire flares. Uh, no response and no, you know, the vessel continued to close. And so I ultimately uh, instructed him to fire warning shots with the 50 cal machine gun across the bow of this um, particular ship, which he did, burst of 50 cal across the bow. Uh, that uh, is probably sufficient to wake up most people with tracer and so on anyway. The result of that was uh, the vessel switched its navigation lights on, turned away and uh, took off into the night and didn't come back. So that was, our, <laughs> that was a successful operation as far as we were concerned. That notion that we won't take the first hit, that was part of that change in posture. We would show our hand early and demonstrate our resolve early before anything happened to us and so that was probably the one of the earlier more practical demonstrations of that but I guess the, the one that Sarah and, and Michael referred to was after we'd finished our mission and we were leaving the Gulf to come home and we'd exited the Straits of Hormuz again at action stations and we'd fallen out action stations and gone back to defence watches which is basically half the weapon systems manned rather than all the weapon systems manned and the weather was not ideal. It, there was a fair bit of cloud around and light rain. I'd actually just had a shower and the PWA, Principal Warfare Officer, called me up and he said, uh, can you come into the ops room, sir? There's, there's something I'd like you to see. And so I, I dragged on my overalls and boots and I, I walked into the ops room and uh, he said, there's something really weird going on. And on the coast of Oman, we could see a lot of cloud. And on the cloud, the edges of the cloud, our radar was showing these automatic detect high speed, you know, what we call speed levers. It's basically a little line that indicates how fast something is going. And it's very unusual for it not to be associated with a contact like a blip, which is a ship. But the edge of the cloud was showing all these speed levers, multiple speed levers that were changing. And we've never seen that before. And so that's really weird. So I said, well, let's go up and actually see what we can see through binoculars, you know, the old fashioned way. So he we went up onto the upper deck and it was, as I said, it was, it was hazy, cloudy, light rain. We could see that there was something coming out of the haze and then very quickly realised that there were about 30-odd fast-moving speedboats all in a mass coming towards us. We didn't have time to go to action stations. We just didn't. So we closed up uh, our action gun crews at the rush and that was enough for them to realise that there was something they, they had to hurry and the guns crews that were already closed up started exercising their 
graduated responses. And so basically um, we were doing the warnings on the radio, but it was, it was basically unfolding far too quickly to go through those in a graduated way. So we went straight to the, the highest one, which was basically turn away or we'll, or we'll fire into you in layman's terms. And I don't actually believe that they would have been monitoring that channel anyway, but we went through that because that was the procedure we had. And uh, we started firing flares. Uh, these, interestingly enough, these boats were so tightly packed that uh, flares were bouncing from one boat to the other. And I gave the instruction to the guns crews that if anybody saw anybody on those boats with a weapon, they were to engage immediately without further orders. There was a fair bit of tension amongst the guns crews because they figured this was pretty real and they were ready. I mean, their weapons were actioned. You know, there was somebody on the weapon, some of the pair of binoculars just looking for any sign of any weapons being brandished. I was with the PWO on the bridge wing. As these boats closed, us on what I considered to be a, uh, you know, an attack vector. I said, right, back into the ops room and stand by to uh, engage these contacts. I said, I reckon I've got about 30 seconds before I give you the order to open fire. And so he went back into the ops room, um, put his headset on, I had mine on, and literally I was pressing the, um, the press to talk button to uh, give him the order to open fire when they turned away. And so they probably had about 10 seconds before we would have engaged them with, uh, with our 50 cals, which we didn't, thank goodness, because that would have been a lot of paperwork. That would have been quite devastating for them as well on those boats versus your 50 cal. Oh, we would have cleaned them up. No doubt. Look, there was no doubt in my mind that had we engaged them, it would have been a slaughter of them. But on the other hand, they are closing the ship on an attack vector, failing to heed any of our warnings and could quite easily have had below our line of sight RPGs, so rocket propelled grenades, you know, shoulder launch weapons, even AK-47s. Had that scenario been in play, then they could have done a lot of damage to us. Again, looking at this scenario of don't take the first hit, I felt quite justified in the decision that I had made that at that point, you know, at that threshold that we would engage them. That would have been a nightmare as far as international news. Our initial thoughts were they might have been smugglers, but we quickly changed our mind and came to the conclusion that it was a Iranian revolutionary guard and that they were exercising a thing called swarm tactics which is exactly what they look like, a swarm. There's so many of them so close together. And the tactic is that they expect that most of them will be taken out in any attack, but some will get through and they will incur you know, serious damage on the ship that they're attacking. And that's what they were, they were practicing that basically and testing our resolve, I guess, as well. Well, from there, David, in December 2002, you were promoted to captain. In 2003, you're honoured on Australia Day. And then early that year, Knimbler is sent back to the Arabian Gulf and this time for combat operations. So it's quite a busy time for you. Yeah, absolutely. So we sailed from Sydney up to Darwin. We were farewelled uh, in person by the Prime Minister. At that stage, it was John Howard. Chief of Defence Force was General Cosgrove and uh, leader of the opposition was Simon Crean. And they all came on board the ship said goodbye to us and away we went. Um, one thing to this very day has stuck firmly in my mind was that speaks to the kind of, I guess, the, the burden of responsibility that you have when you're the CO is a lot of families came on board to see us go. A lot of families were present in our hangar when we had the farewell speeches from the, the Prime Minister and so on. And then as they were all leaving, all the families were leaving and I was on the gangway saying goodbye to as many of them as I could and shaking their hands and whatever. And one father um, took my hand and he said... Uh, he held it tight and he said, you bring my boy back home safe. You make sure you do that. I think that brought home to me exactly what the, what the weight of responsibility was and what I actually had to, what I had to do uh, as the CEO and the responsibility you bear to their families as well. It made me very conscious of that and I've never, ever forgotten that moment. It did quite shape some of my thinking as we went into that deployment. 
So when you get back to the Gulf, now it's in a different political and military context. How is the morale and focus on the ship? How's that changed from before? And what are some of the day-to-day engagements that you're in? How's that changed from your recent experience in the Gulf? I mean, it was very clear that we were going to participate in combat operations. Everybody knew that that was the expectation, that that's what we were going to do. It was just a matter of when. And so our focus was probably a little more sharply honed around that. On the way to the Gulf, we had this interesting kind of scenario with anthrax vaccinations where once we got to sea, it was announced or we were instructed that we had to inoculate all our sailors against anthrax because there was this concern that the Iraqis had biological weapons. It was really poorly implemented in in that sailors had to sign consent forms and there was this really badly orchestrated, I guess, uh, education program around it. And uh, it was even kept from me as a CEO that this was going to happen. I didn't even know at the time that we had anthrax uh, vaccinations in the ship. They'd kind of come on board surreptitiously with the medical team and been stored in a fridge somewhere. And so then we were told, you know, basically get your sailors to line up, sign this consent form and have an anthrax jab. There was a whole bunch of uh, literature online around anthrax vaccinations from the first Gulf War to 1992 causing uh, Gulf War syndrome and also having negative impacts on women in childbirth and a whole bunch of negative stuff that had not been taken into consideration when they rolled this plan out to inoculate everybody. And so as a consequence, they actually had in excess of 25 sailors refused to sign the consent form and have the inoculation. So when we actually reported that back to headquarters the instruction came well if they don't have the inoculation they can't go into your area of operation and so now we're confronted with the fact that you know this large chunk of sailors will have to leave the ship and therefore will be devoid of that capability that they give us anyway cut long story short my doctor implemented his own education program and met with basically every sailor in the ship in small groups described the program described you know the medical facts around it and ultimately reduced that number of sailors who were not going to have the inoculation from 25 down to about seven and those seven were adamant they weren't going to have it and so ultimately we landed those sailors as we sailed past christmas island one of those sailors on his return to australia was interviewed by the 730 report it became a bit of a political hot potato for a short period of time for us it was a more of a distraction by the time we got to the Gulf, it was all done and dusted as far as we were concerned. We were just getting on with business. And uh, we sailed into the Gulf, we went to Bahrain, and then we headed up to the Northern Arabian Gulf, as we had done the first deployment. Our focus initially was the same. Uh, we were intercepting those um, smugglers coming out of Iraq. But overlaid on that was the fact that we were now well and truly recognised for our command and control capabilities. And there was a coalition a command team Uh, embarked in the ship under the command of uh, Captain Peter Jones, Australian Navy captain, who was a commander of the task group operating in the Northern Arabian Gulf. And they were planning the maritime operation. That would be the, I guess, the precursor to combat operations. And then how we would conduct ourselves once combat operations were, uh, were commenced against Iraq. In preparation for that, I was given tactical command of a bunch of um, coalition assets, about 120 coalition sailors, Americans, and Brits, including British Royal Marines, and their rubber boats, ribs, uh, were embarked in Canimbla, and they formed a, a quite large boarding and riverine operations capability. We trained with them as a mothership, developed our own routines for recognition so that when a ship was returning to the force, they couldn't be mistaken as a, as a hostile so it's called, you know, to, to avoid blue-on-blue engagements. We worked up a whole bunch of tactics with those boats and those crews over time. 
the way we embarked them onto Canimbla was unique because it, we'd never had that many ribs before. So the ship's army department and our bosun's mates uh, worked out ways in which we could um, build uh, these ad hoc uh, kind of uh, cradles that we could um, store these boats in when they weren't in the water and uh, and worked out ways to launch them and recover them safely at sea. So it was quite something really to see those guys just come up with something, you know, <laughs> some innovation that things that had never been done before just by giving them the opportunity to just crack on and do things. We were the last fuel for helicopters operating over Iraq. And as a consequence, we had, uh, you know, dozens upon dozens of helicopters coming and going every day, all through the day and night, fueling or just flopping on for a bit of respite and to get some food. We very quickly got a reputation as having the best food in the Northern Arabian Gulf, mainly because we had fresh food and steaks from Australia. So it was nice. And if you've ever eaten food in an American ship, you'll know that it's mostly processed junk, uh, literally. And uh, and ours was all fresh and yummy. So it was, was not unusual to have a queue of American helicopters around lunchtime, wanting to land on and fuel. The request was permission to land on, shut down and fuel. And shut down was code for, so I can get out and go to your galley and have a steak. We came up with a way that we could give them a hot box because we just couldn't afford to have them shut down on the deck for long enough to have a meal. So we'd have come up with a way the chefs would run them out a hot box of something yummy so um, they could still operate and still have a nice meal. So that was pretty cool. And again, that was something the chefs just did off their own bat. They were, you know, they were good like that. It became clear that there would be a role for us in entering the waterway, the Quabella waterway, which was uh, the main waterway from the Northern Arabian Gulf out, up into their deep water port of Umkasar. It's 40 miles, 40 nautical miles of waterway. The, the mission that we were being given was to secure that waterway, keep it safe so that we could facilitate safe passage of humanitarian aid into basically internal Iraq at some point after the combat operations had ceased. And so that was my mission. Uh, in addition to those ribs, I was given tactical command of a U.S. Navy uh, patrol boat and U.S. Coast Guard cutters. And so we had this kind of flotilla of small craft that was in support of my mission. And Captain Jones, as the command of the task group, had all the big ships, if you like, under, under his command to do the, the broader uh, maritime mission. But one of the jobs, the question that was asked, which I don't think they'd thought too heavily hard about, was, well, what are we going to do if we capture a whole bunch of Iraqi prisoners? Deep down in the Gulf, there was a US ship that had been designated to be the, you know, the, the prisoner handling vessel, but it wasn't going to be operating up in the northern Gulf. And, and so it was a kind of question that remained unanswered. And so I just said, well, look, I think we could do that, given the size of our ship and you know, our internal capacity. So Admiral Costello said, thank you. Yes, you can do that job. And so we became the, uh, what they call the EPW, Enemy Prisoner of War Coordination Vessel for the Northern Arabian Gulf. Now, we didn't think that would be a huge job, but we didn't know. And so when I went back to the ship, I got the operations officer and, uh, sorry, that's no, the XO, the OIC of the ship's army department, who was a, a major, Lieutenant Commander Mick Edwards was the XO and um, Major Neil Grierson was the, was the OC SAD and, uh, and the OPSO was a guy called uh, Lieutenant Rod Newbold. And they got together and they, I said, go away, find out all the rules under the Geneva Convention and work out how we're going to be a prisoner of war coordination ship if we need to. You know, they went away and they did exactly that and they came up with a fantastic plan, wrote all the op orders and so on and so forth. As a consequence, we practised it a couple of times, how we would do it if we had a, you know, if we brought some prisoners on board, how we would sequence it, how we would workflow that whole thing so that we were uh, operating in accordance with the Geneva Convention. And lo and behold, that paid fruit because we ended up actually 
undertaking that role with um, prisoners that were under, captured by others and also prisoners that we captured ourselves. Um, that was something interesting that I don't think that we'd ever thought we'd, we'd get to do. Were there any other particular hairy encounters or tense moments from this deployment you'd like to share? In the prelude to the declaration of combat operations, there are a number of um, rushes of ships out of the Quiet Abdullah waterway. Unfortunately, this is something that had been anticipated, and uh, so we had some plans for that. And so there was a dow rush when a whole bunch of cargo dows basically rushed out of of the waterway, and they had to be corralled and boarded to make sure that they weren't running weapons or key regime figures and so on and so forth, terrorists or whatever. That actually worked pretty much according to plan. And then not long, maybe two days later, the Iraqis kicked out every steel, the larger steel hull vessels out of the waterway as well. So they all came roaring out and a similar kind of operation ensued where they were all boarded and cleared and sent further down the Gulf, basically out of the way so they weren't, wouldn't become collateral in any combat operations. One of my boarding parties had into the waters that we were allowed to uh, under the UN sanctions where we were allowed to operate. One of my boarding parties had noticed there were these, uh, these tugs at anchor. And they headed over to these tugs to basically investigate what they were doing there. As they approached, they were intercepted by a much larger, heavily armed Iraqi patrol boat, which basically uh, rode them off. And we responded, as in Kanimbla, we responded by roaring up the waterway to give them some kind of protection. And we whistled up a missile-armed uh, helicopter from one of the nearby um, ships and it came in, you know, basically over the top of us. And basically the message to the Iraqi patrol boat was back off or you're going to wear a missile. And they did. They turned around and, and, uh, and headed away. But what that did do was alert us to the fact that there was something sensitive about those tugs. And subsequently, a day or so later, on the eve of combat operations, USS Chinook, uh, which was, as I said, under our tactical command, uh, intercepted those tugs as they were making to leave and basically kept them in place. And the next day, our boarding parties went on board to actually do a proper search. And in the conduct of that search, so one of these tugs had a, a large barge moored alongside it, and on that barge was a container. And so our boarding party went inside the container to have a look at um, you know, what was in it, basically, as part of their clearance operation. It was absolutely empty. The leading seaman uh, in charge of that activity was suspicious of that fact, and in one corner of this empty container was a pile of debris. So he basically rummaged through that pile of debris, discovered a hatch in the bottom of the container, opened up the hatch. The hatch went straight down into this barge, quite a large ocean-going barge, Inside the barge were a whole bunch of uh, mine rails, which had um, two different types of mines on them, a disguised uh, clandestine mine-laying capability. Having discovered that, the next two tugs were then investigated, and similarly, they were disguised mine layers outfitted differently on their quarter decks or their working deck. They had a lot of um, 44-gallon drums lined up. They'd actually been hollowed out and welded together, and so those 44-gallon drums disguised the mine-laying rails on the backs of those tugs. And so you fold back the, uh, the 44-gallon drums and here are all these mines ready to lay just by pushing them along little tracks and they would just basically roll off the back of the tug into the water. The plan for the Iraqis was that those tugs were going to sail out into the northern Arabian Gulf, basically randomly drop those mines all over the place. And that would then have tied up our ships for weeks and weeks. A, we couldn't have operated in those waters and B, trying to actually find those mines and clear them would have been a nightmare for a mine clearance effort. That was a big success intercepting those before they were laid. As a consequence of that, we discovered that the crews of those um, tugs were in fact Iraqi Republican Guard and the highest ranking person on board was a brigadier. They constituted a large chunk of the prisoners of war that were brought back to Kanimbla for processing. 
we had a uh, Q80 liaison officer on board. He was the guy who did the initial questioning of, of the prisoners to see if we could glean any instant intelligence. And quite frankly, once they were captured, they were happy to pretty much tell the whole story. So we gleaned a lot of intelligence uh, from them once they were captured and processed. Once we'd processed them, as per the Geneva Convention, they were loaded into our um, landing craft and taken down south into the Gulf to the American ship that was actually fully set up for um, prisoner handling, if you like. From then on, we started to push our patrols further and further north up the river. Uh, HMAS uh, Anzac had its um, five-inch Friday when they provided naval gunfire support to the Royal Marines ashore on the L4 Peninsula. We had box seats for a whole bunch of Tomahawk land attack missile launches from our consort USS Higgins. They were launching Tomahawks into Iraq, and we basically got to see from very close quarters every launch. That was quite spectacular. There was a mine clearance effort in the Quabella Waterway Coalition, mine hunters and mine sweepers, Brits and uh, Americans. They were slowly clearing the waterway, and as they cleared a swept channel, when they got to a particular point, they'd clear a box, and that would become an operating box for us, and we'd move up the channel into the box. We'd operate in that box, and that then gave us extra range for our small boats to operate further and further up into the river, and by kind of leapfrogging like that, in 10-mile increments up the river, we got to the point where we had achieved our mission and we'd actually secured that whole 40 miles of river. Along the way, boarding parties found weapons, captured weapons, interrupted potential attacks from um, stay be- remnants, stay behind, discovered a suicide boat laden with explosives that looked like it was being ready to launch into the river. So presumably one of the big ships like us would have been the, the target of that attack. And so we just worked our way up the river and ultimately cleared it I remember one night uh, there was a countermining. These things were going off every half an hour sometimes, not all the time, of course. But one night they must have countermined something significant because the explosion was so big it threw me out of my bunk. (laughs) So so, um, whatever that was, it was big and it wasn't too far away from our ship either. Well, it's quite apparent from your answer there the significant role Knimbler played in the Gulf in that period of time and it's no wonder the ship was awarded the meritorious unit citation for its collective efforts and then subsequently the Gloucester Cup as most efficient ship in the Navy. You and the crew are operating under intense command pressure with lots of internal and external issues at play. And you personally, David, are awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for Leadership in Action as well as the US Bronze Star. Quite a significant period. Absolutely. It was, Alex. And um, I guess it's stuck with me, you know, ever since then. What I really need to do, though, is actually stress how good that ship's company was. That crew were fantastic. And their ability to innovate in circumstances where they were confronted with things that had never been done before was fantastic. And it was at every single level. It wasn't just, uh, you know, it wasn't just the operational on the command team. It was all the way through the ship. Sailors, and, and don't forget the soldiers I had in my ship's company, the ship's army department, were fantastic on both deployments. The first deployment set us up for the second deployment the role that individual sailors and soldiers played in contributing to the ship's uh, operational capabilities and the outcomes that we had can't be underestimated and can't be understated. It was such a good crew, such a great team, and I was very privileged to have command of them and very, I've always felt very privileged that they supported me so well uh, in that ship. They're operationally quite intense deployments you have with Knimbler. Well, they're a career highlight, and they're also quite a way to bow out from sea time service, because since then you're involved as director of a number of complex projects dealing with future warfighting capabilities and also addressing the needs of Navy intelligence. When do you wrap up your time with the Navy, David? I left the permanent Navy in 2005, and I have done some reserve projects. 
I like my reserve time because it keeps me in contact with the Navy, which which I do see as is a bit of a family. Well, not just the Navy, but the, the whole of the Defence Force. And it is a kind of part of your extended family. I love my interactions with sailors. They are they always bring a smile to my face. Just the character that sailors and soldiers have, the way that they can, uh, in the most dire of circumstances, they can, uh, they will just say something that will crack you up and give you a good reality check and, and bring you back on track. So I certainly have missed that when I've been in civilian employment and so on. So going back to do reserve time has always been really quite cathartic for me. And I also like the fact that I can still contribute to Navy capability through those projects and keep my hand in, if you like. But to answer your question simply, I think my time as a reserve naval officer is drawing to a close. In the next little while, I think I'll finish with that. There comes a time when I guess my currency is waning and it's also time, I think, to move on to other things. So, David, looking back over all your sea time, all your deployments over the years, how do you reflect on the role your family played? The role of uh, families can't be underestimated in what they do for us when we go away to sea. Going away for such prolonged periods of time, six months, sometimes nine months more recently, it is tough on people in the Navy. It's really important that the people who are away on deployment uh, know that things back home are progressing normally that children are being raised, that the household is being looked after, and also that we're being supported morally, that our families support what we do, understand why we do it. And for us to know that uh, our families will be waiting for us when we get back home is really, really important. It's kind of what keeps you going throughout that time away. Their love and support is absolutely pivotal. And when you are feeling a bit down, it's a good boost, I guess, to know that you have that family support back home. And that manifests in a number of ways. In the days of uh, written letters, getting mail from home was always really important. And it was really a boost when we got to port or or when we got bags of mail delivered to us at sea. You could just tell in the ship, spirits lifted just by that simple act of getting some letters. I guess the other thing that, that you have to acknowledge is that it is tough for families when we're away that, that they do need to just carry on as normal whilst we're the ones off having the adventures and so on. And I guess there's a certain stoicness that's needed for Navy families and I know that it is very tough on them. We just have to acknowledge the fact that, that they do such a great job supporting us while we do the stuff that we need to do uh, going, going away to sea and, and can't also underestimate the adjustment that takes place when we come back from our adventures and uh, lob back into our homes and expect the household to kind of uh, mould around us. And of course, they've been doing their thing the whole time we've been away. And so that adjustment period sometimes takes a bit of work. But yeah, as I said, I just wanted to um, acknowledge the fact that uh, we couldn't do what we do without having strong family support behind us. And just quickly, that's an interesting point to acknowledge there that you will have seen over time, the course of your career, how the capacity to communicate with family has changed. If we go historically right back, well before your time, obviously, we can think of that romantic image of soldiers sending letters to their loved ones back home while they're in the trenches on the Western Front, that kind of thing. And when you started in the Navy, it would have been, yes, letters that would have taken, I'm not sure, I imagine weeks to reach to and fro. And by the time you left at what, at least a phone call, if not some form of instant messaging. So what was that evolution of communication like over time and that immediate access to family and loved ones? Well, you're absolutely right. When I started out, it was mail. And sometimes we wouldn't get mail for weeks at a time because mail bags would arrive in a port after we'd left and then they'd have to be forwarded onto the next port and sometimes they'd arrive in the next port after we left and so um we in those days we used to number our letters so we could read them in order when they finally arrived 
<laughs> at our at wherever we happen to be. Over time, we we did have access to more immediate communications. When I was in the Gulf in 2001 and 2003, we were able to phone home on occasion from the satellite communications in the ship. And more recently, ships have been connected to the internet. And so immediate communications is possible, including FaceTime, Zoom, all those kind of applications. So I think the ability to communicate with families is way better now than it was um, some years ago. What's your key takeaway? How do you reflect on your time in uniform? Well, that's an interesting question that I could answer a number of ways. But I think what I've taken away from that is an unending love and respect for men and women who serve in our defence forces. And I, I know that can sound a bit trite, but it's, it's actually not. I've found that the people who serve in the defence force to be fantastic people. And irrespective of what generation they are, you know, I'm a baby boomer and there's XYs and millennials and whatever. When you're all lumped in together doing a job, you know, in a ship or, or whatever, you do find that these people, these young Australians are, they're just terrific people. And they're as good as any generation that's gone before them. And so I think my takeaway is a, a kind of unending respect and admiration for them. And I just like the company of military and ex-military people, their sense of humour. I like the way that they have their no-nonsense kind of attitude. It's something that I will never forget. And it is something that I will cherish really until I die, that kind of sense of family that you get from serving with, with those great people. David, thank you for sharing your memories of service with that family. Thank you for your service and for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex. That was my conversation with David McCourt. You can hear Angus Horden's conversation with two of David's officers on Canimbla back in 2017, Season 1, Number 8. Sarah Turner and Michael Wright. You do get taught rules of engagement and, you know, you do close up to heightened states and all of these types of things, but it's interesting the body's response when you're actually in this situation and the adrenaline, that tingly feeling through your body. As I got closer, we could see that there were, there were boats uh, and moving really fast, like really coming up on us quickly. In season two, Angus also interviewed Peter Jones referenced in this conversation with David in number 32, Peter Jones. The smugglers would be trying to smuggle out oil and they would try all sorts of things to prevent boarding teams apprehending them. And Michael Wright returned to the podcast in the 2018 post-season two specials in the episode called Panel Returning Home. Part of how those suicides come about and how the trauma comes about is that it is so isolating. You do think, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of feeling down about this particular thing. Follow this podcast on social media to never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod. Like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast. And follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>